The first reading is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, commencing at verse 27 and 32, and this may be found on page 969 of the Church Bible and on the screen. Jesus speaking now, he's in the middle of the sermon talking about adultery and divorce. Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Divorce. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. But anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, Moving on to Matthew 19. Sorry about that. <laughs> this is, the reflection is a bit strong here at the moment. Uh, so it's, we're now moving on to Matthew 19, uh, verses 1 to 12, and that may be found on pe- page 986 of the Church Bible. Divorce. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, 
Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hans there. Okay, now you can all sit down. Thank you very much. Okay, let's let's uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Hopefully, you've got a handout. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our time now as we look at your word together. Please speak to us about this difficult subject of marriage, remarriage, divorce, and adultery. Please help us to be clear on what the Bible teaches and help us uh, to change and to live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, be great if you can have Matthew chapter 5 open. Let's start there. I'm going to start off by reading you an extract taken from the Daily Mail, and then we're going to have a little poll about it. So uh, listen up. Dear Belle, agony aunt, dear Belle, two years ago I had an affair discovered by my husband. We tried to mend the marriage, going to a counsellor separately and together, and I'm still going, trying to find a way either to live in my broken marriage or have the courage to leave. Either option looks like hell. My husband says he loves me, but he cannot live with someone who's betrayed him. He says he will leave when the children have grown up. Throughout our marriage, my husband has regularly smashed things, sulked, and ignored me for months on end. He makes me feel small, lonely, marginalized. I wanted to leave when the kids were small, but my courage fails me. Yet he's also funny, generous, and he's a fantastic dad, and I do love him. The stupid thing is, I did this to myself, and I'm punishing myself as a result. Should I stay, enabling my children's lives to be uninterrupted and happy, or leave and make them hate me and carry their parents' divorce forever? Please help. Well, I think we'll all agree that this is a messy and difficult situation. But a quick poll, hands up if you think the couple should separate. Okay? Okay? Hands up if you think that the couple should stick it out and stay together. Okay? And for those of you who have abstained, I'm not going to ask. We're going to come back to that later. Let's just have a little think about statistics for divorce in the UK. Um, 42% of all marriages end in divorce. But the flip side of that, according to the Office of National Statistics, say that 60% of marriages are expected to reach at least the 20th wedding anniversary. And the average length of marriage in this country is 32 years. So it's not all doom and gloom for marriage. It's not all doom and gloom. But it can seem like it if you're caught in the middle of a divorce, which is something that's most likely to occur apparently between the 4th and 11th 
wedding anniversary. Anyone in that bracket? I am. Anyone else in that bracket? Yeah. Come and get prayer afterwards, okay? Let's, I, th- I think you and I, we should go over there and the kind of ministry team, we should be prayed for. Um, now, as interesting as those Office of National Statistics are, um, we're not here to look at that. We're here to look at what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage and hear what God has to say. So we're, as Jit said earlier, we're continuing our sermon series in Matthew, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at murder, um, and kind of Jesus ratchets up the stake on murder. He says, it's not just the physical act of murder. Actually, we can murder people with our thought life, with our words, uh, with how we treat people. And he's saying that, and actually tonight as we come to adultery, that's ratcheted up as well for us, because... We can actually commit adultery in our hearts, in our minds uh, as well. And so I guess if you go away from here tonight, kind of remembering three things, I've put them on the handout for you. Remember these three things. Um, We need to speak into our culture in three areas, I think. We need to have a much higher view of sin. We need to have a higher view of sin. We also need to have a much higher view of marriage in this culture. Because people just treat it so wishy-washy. I can change my partner like this, like that. We'll come on to that. And thirdly, we need to have a much higher view of singleness. And that's the great thing about the church. The church should embrace people who are single. This is a big family uh, for God's people. Singleness is a gift from God, just like marriage too. So firstly, higher view uh, of sin. Verse 27, Matthew chapter 5. There's this similar refrain that goes through. Uh, this Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And here we are thinking through adultery. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Two things to say here. Firstly, this is not talking about natural relations. So what a husband and a wife do in marriage, that's fine. Uh, this, is, this is talking about sex outside of marriage. Sex in marriage is God-given and beautiful. And what you do with your spouse, we don't need to know about that, but read Song of Songs together. It's a really helpful thing to read t- together. Um, the teaching here is, is referring to unnatural relations. That is, any sexual um, activity that's occurring outside of the one flesh, so outside of one man, one woman for life in marriage. That's what we're thinking about here. So what Jesus is not saying is, it's not forbidden for a man to look at another woman. But it is a real warning for men, particularly, not to look lustfully at other women. And actually, this isn't exclusively a masculine problem. Um, But I think men are more visual thinkers, so it's particularly a challenge for men. So this is saying that we should avoid mentally undressing someone as we walk down the road and we see someone of the opposite sex and we think that they're attractive. We shouldn't do that. Uh, this is also saying that we shouldn't take that double look or we shouldn't kind of have that approach to somebody uh, who's on TV. Um, we can look, but there's a difference between looking and looking. You get what I mean? Let's move on. Uh, okay, I-, I think there's a children's chorus that's helpful here. Um, be very careful, little eyes. Uh, what you see. Be very careful, little ears, what you hear. Be very careful, little tongue, what you say. Be very careful, little hands, what you do. Be very careful, little feet, where you go. And that line, be very careful, little eyes, what you see, that's the focus here. That's really the focus. So when we're considering looking at someone lustfully, that's the point. 
looking lustfully is to commit adultery in the heart. And if heart adultery is the result of eye adultery, then there's something drastic that needs to happen right at the beginning with our eyes. There's a theologian in the 18th century by the name of um, uh, John, John Owen, and he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The great good news of the Bible is that we're called out of darkness into light, into relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been restored as Christians. Now we're to have the kind of pedal to the metal, so to speak. We're to be full-throttle Christians, putting to death sin. So we're to be actively, as Christians, making war against sin, taking this seriously. And that's what um, we want, don't we? We want God to be God over every area of our life, including our thought life. The Bible calls us to pursue holiness and to live the Christ-like life. And that's what we've been going through in the mornings at church, Christ-centered life. And it's been great so far. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross every day and follow me. Look at verse 29, how serious this is. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So if your eye causes you to sin, uh, because temptation comes through your eyes, then pluck out your eyes. It can get much more serious. That is, don't look. Behave now as though you don't have any eyes. Uh, so kind of be blind to those objects that previously caused sin. If your foot or your hand caused you to sin because temptation comes through your hands, through the stuff you do, uh, or the places you go through your feet, the places we visit, then don't do it, Jesus is saying. Don't even go there, guys. Come on, let's think about this stuff. So that's the first thing. Second thing, we need a higher view of marriage in our culture. And I just want to say a few kind of things here before we really dig into this. That uh, This is potentially a painful topic to be thinking about. I appreciate that. Um, my intention is not to upset anyone, not at all. Um, and um, I know the pain that many people suffer. My parents are separated. My wife's, um, my wife's parents, they're both divorced. A friend of mine who I went to school with, he's divorced. Um, so I'm familiar with divorce. Um, and like many of you, are as well. By no means do I want to add to anybody's distress this evening. But the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and all scripture is useful. And so on that basis I take courage and hopefully what we're going to look at tonight is going to be useful for you, useful to think through. So let's have a look at what um, Jesus says in verse 31 to 32. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So we need a high view of sin, we need a high view of marriage, we need a high view of singleness as well, and that's really helpful. But this really is a summary on divorce. The full kind of gloss that we get in Matthew's gospel is in chapter 19. So let's flick there and we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at Matthew 19 because actually I think Matthew chapter 5 is quite clear. So let's look at Matthew 19 and we'll start um, at verse 3. 
But as we start, um, so this is page 986, there is a controversy in the first century, in Jesus' time, about divorce. And there are two schools of thought. You've got that on your handouts. There was this one school of thought by Rabbi Hillel. The other school of thought was by this other rabbi called Shammai. And the Shammai school of thought, they held to a very strict view of divorce. It was a really strict view. And they based that in line with Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Sorry about the small print, but you should have that on your handout. That is, divorce was permissible um, for some grave matrimonial offence. Something unseemly or indecent had to be found uh, for the woman. The Hillel um, form of divorce, on the other hand, was really lax. It was a really kind of easy way to get divorced. A man could divorce his wife for any cause, any, any cause at all. Um, all he had to do was to issue a divorce certificate. It's interesting that the woman couldn't initiate the divorce. It was always done by the man. It's the culture they were in. And he could do it for any cause, any cause that he found displeasing in the woman. So if she had an unsightly mole on her face, or if she burnt the dinner, um, or if he found someone else more attractive than his wife, he could just divorce his wife, give her a certificate of divorce, send her on her way, and find someone else. It's an easy way uh, of divorce. Um, all he had to do was give her the certificate. There were no lawyers. There were no court cases. There was no scandal. There was no respectable religious men being dragged through law courts. Nothing like that. It was really, really easy to get divorced um, back then. So what we have in Jesus' day is two different types of divorce. An easy way and a hard way. And the Pharisees, surprise, surprise, are attracted to this easy way of divorce. The Hillel way of divorce. And so they asked Jesus, which side really of the debate do you come down on, Jesus? So let's have a little look at verse 3. 19 verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now it looks like they're asking Jesus, are there any reasons a man can have to divorce his wife? That's what it looks like on face value, doesn't it? But I've also given you a couple of other Bible translations on your handout um, that translate the any and every reason actually means this any cause divorce that, that, that we've been thinking about. It's the catchphrase for the Hillel school of thinking. Now it could be a coincidence, but let's just see how the Lord Jesus answers the question. Look down to verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So I think what's going on here is that Jesus is offering legitimate grounds for divorce. Not any cause, but grounds based on sexual immorality. They're the grounds for divorce. Now the Pharisees, they took divorce lightly, really lightly, but Jesus took divorce really, really seriously. So serious that he's calling remarriage after divorce adultery. Anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And if that wasn't so, the disciples would have responded differently because they say, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. If remarriage is off the table, it's better not to marry in the first place. In verse 11, Jesus replied, 
Not everyone can accept this word, but only for those whom it's been given. So, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult for what's, uh, uh, what's, what's going on here. But I think that's the kind of the main thrust of Jesus' argument in the gospel, and I've given you on the next page of your handout, is the other gospel references um, that um, if you divorce and remarry, it's always adultery. Um, but that's very difficult. It's difficult to take that on board. But I'm really glad for what Jit said earlier, before we started uh, this evening, about what was said in Isaiah. That actually, when we come to God, those things in the past, actually they've been dealt with. There is forgiveness. We can be forgiven. It's not an unpardonable sin if you have been divorced and got remarried. Um, in fact, Jesus uh, addresses the woman at the well, and he notices that the divorce that she's in with that current husband is actually a legitimate marriage. So there's very much sensitivity that needs to be taken here. But actually, we want to highlight those three things that we've been saying. We need a much more serious view of sin, a higher view of uh, marriage, and a high view uh, of singleness in our culture. So this is controversial. It's uh, debated in Christian circles. It's difficult. Some people hold the position that divorce and remarriage is permissible for adultery and perhaps abandonment and abuse. Others hold the view that remarriage is adultery. And that does seem to be what Jesus is saying here. But Christians who've been forgiven by God, that great big thing, that we've been reconciled by the blood of Jesus that we've been singing about, by his bloodshed on the cross, actually, if we've been forgiven the great thing, we should forgive others. So reconciliation in marriage is always the big and first option. That's the big thing. That's what we should always be uh, striving for, reconciliation, particularly with our spouse, even if there's been marital unfaithfulness. You see, in Jesus' time, the Romans and the Jews, the kind of the Roman and Jewish legal authorities, they said that husbands must divorce adulterous wives. They must do that. So a Christian would be breaking the law in the first century if he didn't divorce his wife. And Jewish law had made divorce the penalty instead of death. So in the Old Testament, you remember, if a woman was caught in adultery, she'd be stoned to death. They'd relax that. They'd said, no, there can, be, um, uh, there can be divorce. But marriage back then was commonplace. Remarriage after divorce was commonplace. And I think what we see here in Matthew 19 is that Jesus, again, is disagreeing with the current authorities. On the one hand, Jesus is stiffening the grounds for divorce to sexual immorality, not for this any cause divorce. And on the other hand, he's relaxing the penalty for divorce even further, not death, uh, not even divorce. He goes even further than that and says, you don't even need to get divorced. It's not mandatory. You don't have to, but it's permissible. And, and, and we see that there uh, in verse 9, um, except for marital unfaithfulness. And again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Now, that's controversial, and I'm sure many of you want to dig uh, further into that. What I've done on the back of your handouts, you'll see, is a whole load of references to some books. Uh, there's a, a free ebook that you can access, um, and there's a debate um, on this very thing that we're thinking through. Um, so, can I encourage you, if you want to dig further, have a look at some of those resources and ask questions. Um, so, JIT's here, 
um, and, and I'm sure he'd be happy if you'd give him a call and meet up with Jit. Um, or you're more than welcome to come and chat with me. Uh, but, but, but Jit's here as well. And, and, and for the ladies, there are uh, the pastoral team. Ruth's here as well. And I'm sure she'd love to talk to people if they've got questions uh, about this. But I want to stop talking about divorce and let's, let's, um, let's, let's think about uh, something else. Because that's not what our agony aunt couple really needs, uh, is it? Um, I want to share with you five pointers I think Jesus gives to help fix broken marriages and any broken marriage. First one is on your sheets there. Your marriage is a miraculous gift from God that's meant to last from death to us part. It's meant to last forever. Yesterday I went to a photo shoot with Mel and the kids tavern. We had a great time. I had no idea where I was going, so I kind of punched it in in the sat-nav. Um, and by, by a miracle, this sat-nav got me there without us being lost. And I even managed to find somewhere to park for free, which I thought was a right bonus. I'm such a cheapskate. Um, but how does, how does sat-nav work? It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. See, my phone uses radio signals from a satellite. I think this is really clever. That's no, amazing. I'm sure, kind of, David, you could tell us loads more about this. I'm quite simple. But these satellites are in space, and kind of they help us to work out exactly where we're going, where the destination is. And um, if it, the sat-nav, knows where it is, it can tell me what I need to do. And uh, that's awesome. And I think, I think kind of it's, it's, it's sort of a bit like that in marriage. Because when you know what the relationship is that you're in, it helps you to know what to do. So what does Jesus say about the marriage relationship? Verse 4, Matthew 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So that's a great definition for marriage. A husband, a man and his wife will be united together as one flesh. In marriage, two people become one that's what marriage makes us into. That means every decision that we make, even decisions which we make which we think are just about us, actually affect both of us. The daily decisions that we make, so kind of what career, what kind of job to go to, whether to come to St. Jude's. Mel and I had, uh, had, had long conversations about this. What home to live in, uh, how many kids that we want to have. I want to have more, by the way. Um, Mel's, Mel's, Mel's not quite so sure. Um, how, how we're going to spend uh, I've got three kids if you're kind of wondering I haven't got that many um, okay how to spend our money um, if, if we want our marriages not only to survive but thrive I think we can't just approach kind of big questions uh, as individuals uh, in marriage we have to take them as this kind of one flesh uh, to coming together as one so it doesn't just mean joint decision making it means that we think through how our decisions impact our spouse. And that's hard at the best of the times, particularly when marriage is in crisis. The temptation at that point, when you're in crisis, actually is to batten down the hatches and to safeguard yourself and to only think of oneself. And I think that's what's going on for our agony aunt couple. For years, he's been sulking, hasn't he? Ignoring her and smashing things. Well, Let's face it, that's pretty selfish behaviour, isn't it? And how does she respond? Well, she goes off and has an affair. It's not exactly investing 
in your oneness of marriage at all. So um, let's, let's think practically. If you're married, um, I, I wonder if there's an area in your marriage where you've been neglecting your oneness, where there's an area that you haven't really uh, been working very hard for your spouse. You've been neglecting an area. Can I dare you to do something about that? Can I dare you to put it right? Maybe you need to tell your spouse a secret. Maybe uh, you need to apologize for something that's weighing heavy on your mind tonight. Again, that's why I think what Jit brought to us earlier is just so helpful. Maybe you've been investing or spending money on something that you shouldn't have. Well, whatever it is, if you want your marriage to improve, not just to survive, but to thrive, make it a priority. Let's deal with it. Don't put it off. Secondly, I think we need to banish any thought that divorce is the answer. In 1519, the Spanish explorer Corte landed in Mexico with 600 men. And he, uh, he was set out to conquer and uh, to, to establish his empire. And he headed into the jungle, and as he did, he gave orders to his men to burn their boats. There was no going back. He wanted to remove any temptation for these guys to turn back uh, and to get out there. And it's the same with marriage. If we want to fix our marriages, we need to abandon any notion that we can turn back. Here's why. Verse 6. They're no longer two, but one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is saying marriage is permanent, it's exclusive, it's lifelong, and it shouldn't be ended by people. In fact, it cannot be ended by people. So I think we need to stop thinking that divorce is a potential solution. So do you see how the Pharisees respond to Jesus, verse 7? Okay, Jesus, they say, if that's the case, if we're meant to take marriage as seriously as a, a lifelong gift from God, why did Moses command divorce in the first place? And actually, they misquote Deuteronomy 24. Go back through these notes later when you get home. Check out Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. There's no command uh, there. Touche, um, but Jesus gives an even better answer. Verse 8, Moses actually permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. So here's the third pointer. The greatest threat to your marriage actually is your hard heart. I wonder if you've ever had the sense that most of your problems in life, your career frustrations, your lack of financial success, your health, even your lack of exercise, basically everything you're dissatisfied with in life, if you trace it back, if you're married, where's the root cause? It's your spouse. And I think we get a real sense of that from this agony aunt couple uh, as well uh, in, uh, th th that we started with. Do you remember what she said about her husband's faults? Throughout our marriage, my husband has regularly smashed things, sulked, and ignored me for months on end. He makes me feel small, lonely, and marginalized. And do you remember what she said about her own faults? Anybody? She didn't, did she? She didn't, she didn't say anything about her own faults. Yeah, nothing. So I think this is an unpleasant truth. Actually, all of us are hard-hearted. And it's, uh, it's a real temptation to blame our spouse for everything that can go wrong. But actually, we need to recognize that we're a massive part of the problem. And we're the only part of the problem that actually we can deal with ourselves, aren't we? So here's the challenge for you this week. And for those who are listening in the car, be careful how you're driving or at home. 
Um, look at an area of your marriage that isn't working at the moment. Write it down on a bit of paper. Maybe write down one or two ways that your hard-heartedness um, is causing an issue. Pray about it. And can I dare you to show that piece of paper to your spouse? Let them read it and apologize. For the greatest threat to our marriage is our own hard-heartedness. Fourthly, Jesus can heal our hard hearts. Amazing. There is good news uh, in the Bible. Now, Jesus doesn't say this into our, uh, directly in our passage, but it's the reason that he came into the world, isn't it? He came to deal with our hard hearts. He came to set us free so that we can have a relationship with God. He came into the world, died for us, took the punishment that our sin rightly deserved, and rose again from the grave, offering us eternal life. He wants to rescue us. He wants to transform us. And he'll start with anyone who's up for changing. Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 says, uh, God says, I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's amazing. That's what God can do for us. If we'll only recognize our hard-heartedness and invite him in. Invite him close. Invite him to heal. And that'd be an awesome thing to do, even tonight, if you're not yet a Christian. And that's what the good news about Jesus is all about. That's what the cross is all about, that Jesus died so that we could have life, an abundant life. But perhaps there is someone here who's totally at their wit's end with marriage. Um, God can change that. God can change that. We'd love to pray with you about that. We'd really love to pray with you and spend some time. There will be prayer at the end. Do please take advantage of that. Jesus can heal your heart. And he can give you the perseverance to keep going, to stick it out, and to forgive and to move forwards. Even if that may not happen for a long, long time. Maybe you might have to suffer for quite some time. But God can give you the patience. Fifthly, we're to never stop forgiving. Probably the saddest part of this agony aunt story was when the wife said, my husband says he loves me, but he cannot live with someone who's betrayed him. I wonder what your reaction was when you initially heard that. You can kind of understand his position, can't we? But... I wonder that when the, the stakes are this high, when it's kind of marriage, this one flesh union, and it's the kind of family home, I wonder how he could not ever consider to reach out to her and offer her forgiveness. Well, why is this? Why is this how, how, how couldn't he do that? Well, despite him being a bit of a moody fool, I think he thinks he's morally superior to his wife because she's the one who's done the dirty on him, And he, maybe he thinks if he forgives her, then she'll become his equal. He'll no longer be superior over her. And I wonder whether he doesn't want to lose that moral superiority over her. So he won't forgive. And I wonder if that sounds familiar in your marriage. I think sometimes it does in mine. I think I'm slow to forgive at times. Um, I think I can be hard-hearted in that way. I think I'm quick to take the moral high ground at times in my marriage. And I wonder if we all are. But the great news is that Jesus never stops forgiving us. So maybe there's something that you need to do to forgive your spouse for. Well, this is my five-point plan to help our agony aunt couple and all marriages generally. But uh, just to say, it doesn't stop there. I'm, I'm sure you've got questions about this, and we're happy to talk this through. But one final thought, and I think this is kind of the sad ending, really. But I think there are going to be times where... 
we've tried these five steps. We've kind of tried to work this through. We've tried to address problems that kind of that, that have caused hard-heartedness and unforgiveness. And despite our best effort, hard hearts refuse to change. And it could be the case where violence may be involved uh, as well. Or when one partner's just conceited or deceitful or just downright cruel consistently and unwilling to change. And the marriage just can't be fixed. Remember this, Jesus doesn't judge judge us on the performance of our Christian life. Neither does he judge us on how good our marriage is either. But he does if we're following him and trusting him or not. So I guess I'm thinking of a situation a little bit like this. Sam and Sally, two people, made up people. It's not their real names. Uh, It's nobody here. And they've got a domestic violence problem. And Sam uh, is a respected church member. But despite that, he beat Sally up when the door was closed. Over the course of their marriage, he's cracked three of her ribs and broken more than one bone. But Sally thought that marriage was for life. She took this one flesh union seriously and didn't want a scandal at church, so she just stuck it out. Until a friend visited her in hospital and said, look, one day, Sam's gonna go too far, and he's gonna do something that could even kill you. Do you really think that God wants that for you? Suddenly, the penny dropped, and she divorced him. You see, when Jesus is talking about divorce, that's the level of brokenness in marriage that Jesus is talking about. Violence, abandonment, consistent cruelty, that's permissible alongside adultery. But I think our problem couple are far away from that. They're no longer in that situation. So I've set out five things that they and any of us could do to save our marriage and make it healthier, none of which are divorce. And I guess it's my prayer that we'd listen and pay careful attention to what the Bible really teaches about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. I haven't had time to talk about singleness. Maybe that could be a sermon for another day. Why don't you pray with me? Let's pray.